You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. But I have some context for you. Here we go. Um, <laughs> I already addressed some of this in the introduction. Um, Paul begins this section by saying, Now concerning the times and seasons. Now that phrase, now concerning, is important because generally speaking, that's how Paul likes to introduce a new topic that's actually an answer to a question that he's been asked. All right, so what question then did they ask? Well, we don't know exactly. There is no letter that we have from the Thessalonians to Paul, but we can make a really good educated guess about what their question was by looking at how Paul replied in his answer. Right? You can make a really good deduction about what they asked. And Paul's answer is about the return of Jesus, right? And his words are very comforting and practical. So apparently the Thessalonians were anxious about the return of Christ. They were insecure about their status before him on the day when he returns. And they must have been asking questions like, will we survive? Will we be saved or destroyed? How can we be ready for his return? And so Paul, in his reply, is seeking to reassure them and comfort them. If you you read the text again, you'll see that there are no notes of rebuke in this passage. There's actually very little rebuke in this entire letter. It's super positive and really encouraging to see that there was at least one church that doesn't get, like, wholesale rebuked in the Old Testament. Or in the New Testament, I mean. Um, They were a good church. So it's all comfort and exhortation in this passage from Paul. Let's just walk through the text, right? Verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's how Paul starts. He begins his answer to their anxious questions by recognizing that they had asked about the times and seasons of Christ's return. Apparently, the Thessalonian Christians thought that they would be best prepared for Christ's return and have less anxiety about it if they just knew the day. Right? Or, or at least the general time frame that Jesus was going to return. They could be less anxious then. They could be better prepared then. But Paul tells them, what does he say? You have no need to have anything written to you about that. Right? So there's nothing for Paul to tell them that they don't already know about that. Now question, is that because Paul had already told them in person when Jesus is going to return? No. Hard no. Right? Look at verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This is a great metaphor, right? It's one used by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and again in the book of Revelation. Uh, What is it talking about? The day will come like a thief in the night. Well, a thief doesn't announce his coming, does he? It would be awesome if thieves would call you, hey, man, I'm going to come into your house around 1030, bust your window out, take your TV. Is that cool? Is that a good time for you? Right? Like, that would be awesome if thieves would call you, but they don't. Right? So when a thief comes, it is unexpected. And Paul says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That is to say that nobody knows when the day will come. So Paul's telling them, and this made me laugh because it's kind of funny. He says, you don't need me to write anything to you about when Jesus will return, because you already know that nobody knows. (laughs) He's like, you already know that nobody knows, so there's nothing for me to tell you about that. The day is going to be unexpected, and it's going to be like a thief. Some early application for you real quick, because this is a personal irritation of mine, right? Date setting concerning Christ's return is foolishness. 
Some of our older people here, do you remember 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988? Remember that book? I think it sold 4 million copies. And then 1989 came, boys, right? Like how embarrassing. How embarrassing. Date setting is nonsense, right? A lot of people have made a lot of money off of poor theology and foolish and biblically illiterate Christians by convincing them that they know when or round about when Jesus is going to come back. And it's a load of garbage. They're hucksters seeking to make money off of people who don't read the Bible. Just throwing that out there to you. If someone says he's coming back this day, I will bet you everything that I own that he doesn't come back that day because no one can know the day or hour that Jesus is going to return. So if someone sets a date, you can almost guarantee it's not going to be that day. (laughs) Right? So don't be a foolish Christian. Paul affirms what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. Nobody knows. Even Jesus, according to his humanity, did not know when he was going to return. So don't waste your time watching quote-unquote Christian like television, trying to guesstimate when it's going to happen, right? It's, it's, it's stupid. It's stupid. I'm sorry. I don't mean to sound It's just, it's dumb. Furthermore, let's, let's, let me continue on this for a second. To try and set a date or even just to be overly preoccupied or preoccupied at all, really, with the when of Jesus' return is a sin. It's a sin, to try to date set or to be preoccupied with when he's going to come back. And why do I say it's a sin? Because it's unbelief of what the Bible says. God says you can't know. So to try and figure it out or be preoccupied with the subject is actually to, to deny what God has said in his word. He says you can't know. And as, I, I think it would be good for us to recognize it's okay for us to not know things. Because God has not exhaustively given us knowledge in the scriptures. Right? So don't sin in that way. Don't be preoccupied with the when. And don't buy into date setting. It's sinful. It's blatantly foolish. The word of God is clear. All right. Now that that's out of the way, that's something that just irritates me to no end. But Paul refers to the return of the Lord in these two verses as, or the return of Christ as the day of the Lord. And that phrase is worth unpacking. All right. The phrase day of the Lord has extensive use in the Old Testament. And it's nearly always a reference to the final day, capital D, the day of of judgment, right? Or it's pointing to a a historic event that foreshadows the final day of judgment. The day of judgment being the day when all people who ever lived will stand before the holy God and give an account to him and be judged. And in the New Testament, that phrase, day of the Lord, is used multiple times to refer to the day of Christ's return. The day when Jesus will return bodily, as we just confessed, to judge both the living and the dead. The day of the Lord is a day of calamity for the wicked and unbelieving sinner. It's a day of destruction and judgment. A day when Almighty God will judge the world in righteousness through his appointed Messiah, his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. On that day, all people will be judged to determine their eternal fate. And after that judgment, the wicked will be cast into an eternal lake of fire to suffer the judgment of God forever. It will be a terrible day for the wicked. We do not have words to fully describe how awful of a day this will be for the ungodly and unbelieving. So I'm not even going to try. I'm going to let the Spirit of God let you see 
and let you believe how awful and terrible that day will be. But for the Christian, for the believer, it is the best day. It is the day of our salvation. When we receive final salvation, the day when we are publicly declared to the uni- before the universe to be the people of God, the day of our public adoption, the day when we will be spared fully from the coming wrath of God. It will be a day of rejoicing for Christ's church. For on that day, our God will be vindicated as the righteous judge of all mankind, and we will from then on be with him forever as those whom he had mercy on through Christ. So that's the day of the Lord. And Paul says that this great day of judgment is coming, but that nobody can know when it will come. Paul then goes on further to to expound on the day of the Lord as unexpected but certain. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So people here in this verse, who are those people? Well, it's a reference to unbelievers, and we know that because people are con- is contrasted with you and us, which is Christians, in verses 4 through 10. Right? So the people are the unbelieving. So sudden destruction then comes upon the unbelievers, and it comes when they're saying to themselves, peace and security. Now that phrase, peace and security, reminds us of what false prophets and wicked people said in Israel before they were sent into exile, doesn't it? Jeremiah complained that these false prophets say peace, peace, when there is no peace. These people are thinking peace and security. Right? These are people, and we know people like this, who are giving no thought to the wrath of God. They're living their lives without a thought towards God, without a thought about eternal destinies, and they think that they are immune from the wrath of God that they have nothing to worry about for some reason. Or they think that there is just no wrath from God coming upon them at all. That's a very common lie. People believe there's no wrath from God coming in the least. But these are people who are at peace with their lives. They're just going about their daily living, and then bam, like a thief in the night, here comes the Lord Jesus to judge them. And that judgment, Paul says, is sudden. It's unexpected, and it is complete It's a total destruction. It's a full judgment. And Paul stresses here in verse 3 that there is no escape from this judgment. That the coming judgment and wrath upon the wicked is certain. Just like a pregnant woman who cannot escape the pain of labor when it's her time to give birth. Just like that, unbelievers will not be able to escape the judgment of God when the day of Christ comes. Just like a pregnant woman going into labor is absolutely inevitable. So is Christ's return to judge the world in righteousness and punish the wicked. It's inevitable, and there is no escape. Actually, in the original language, the emphasis of this sentence falls on the word not. They will not escape. In no way will the unbeliever escape this judgment. There's no way for them to avoid the wrath of God on the day of the Lord. No man can evade the hand of God. No man can outrun him and his justice. No man can fight against the omnipotent one. As Isaiah tells us, all the world is as dust on a scale before him. We are nothing before him, and the wicked will not escape his judgment because there's nowhere to run. What a sober reminder in these opening three verses. What a reminder 
of how terrible and severe the wrath of God is. What a reminder of how certain the judgment of God is. So certain that no man can escape the judgment. You cannot buy your way out of it. You cannot talk your way out of it. You cannot plead your way out of it. When the day comes, the day comes, and there will be no escape for the unbeliever. What a warning that God gives in these verses. A warning to those who do not repent and believe upon Christ. A warning of judgment and eternal damnation to those who have not yet submitted to Christ Jesus as Lord. I beg you, heed the words of the apostle here. Fear the Lord. Let these words have their effect upon you to put dread into your heart so that you might then seek mercy from God found in the Lord Jesus. But know this, if there's an unbelieving heart among us or a false convert, and I'm not saying that I know that there's a false convert among us, but we have exercised church discipline, have we not? There may be false converts among us. If you're one, I'm talking to you. You can be spared from this coming wrath by turning from your sin and turning to Christ in faith. By trusting in Jesus Christ, you can be spared from the wrath of God and the judgment. Our God is most merciful. He will indeed spare all those who seek mercy from him through his son, the Lord Jesus. Even the worst sinner will be spared if they will but come to God through faith in Christ. But apart from Christ, apart from faith in Him, apart from submitting to His Lordship, you will not escape the judgment. This is sober and deadly serious stuff. And only a fool would disregard this warning from God. But then Paul switches gears, doesn't he? What a fearful thing. It is to consider the judgment of God that is to come upon the wicked. How terrifying it is to think of the fate of the unbeliever. But then Paul says this in verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. What a happy thing for us to hear in these verses. How comforting is this? The judgment upon the wicked will be most severe and it will be inescapable. But you are not in darkness. How comforting. Take comfort in these words, Christians. If you're, if you're fearful about the second coming of our Lord, he says, but you are not in darkness. Paul's contrasting. The Christians are not in the group of those who are going to be destroyed and judged. They're not among those for whom the coming of Christ will be like an undesired thief. And why is that? Because we Christians are not in darkness. We are all children of light, children of the day. We are no longer in the darkness of sin. That's what he's saying. You're no longer in the darkness of sin. You're no longer in the darkness of unbelief. You're no longer in the darkness of unregeneracy. Right? You're no longer subject to the wrath of God because that wrath only comes upon those in the darkness of sin. But by God's grace, we have come out from the dark kingdom of this world. A kingdom that is full of sin and is in bondage to sin and Satan and death. A kingdom that is hostile to God, hostile to his Christ, hostile to his gospel, and hostile to his word. We're no longer a part of that kingdom, but instead, we've been translated into the kingdom of his beloved son. The kingdom of light and righteousness and truth and love and faith. We're no longer the enemies of God, as we once were. But instead, now we have become his children. 
children of light. And we've become his children. We've become these children of light through faith in the Lord Jesus. In John 12, 36, Jesus says to his disciples, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. I think that's what Paul's digging on here. Believe in the light. And what does Jesus call himself? The light of the world. He's talking to himself. He says, believe on me that you might become sons of light. He himself is the light that shatters the darkness of sin and brings mercy and forgiveness to sinners in bondage to sin and Satan and death. And we have come to faith in him who is that light. We've received the forgiveness of sins through him. We've been reconciled to God through him. And now as he is the light, we are sons of light through him. What a radical difference the Lord Jesus has made for us. He has changed us so that now we are no longer objects of the wrath and judgment of God. But instead we are his own children. Objects of mercy and divine pleasure. So we need not fear the day of the Lord. Paul says because we're children of the day. Or you could put it this way, we are children of the day of the Lord. Belonging to the Lord... And knowing that his coming will not be thief-like for us, we can then long for and embrace the day of his coming. We can look forward to it gladly because we know that we are not of the darkness. So it's a day of joy for us. We are children of that day. We look forward to it. We have been changed by Christ entirely. So again, we need not fear judgment for we belong to him. This is incredibly comforting if you're afraid Quick show of hands, who in here has been afraid whenever you've considered the coming of Christ since you've become a Christian? I have. How comforting is this? He says, you're not in the darkness. Judgment comes upon those in the darkness, and that's not you anymore, by God's grace. So let's summarize before we go any further. One, Jesus is coming in judgment. You don't need to know when. You just need to know it's going to happen. Two, the judgment will be terrible for the unbeliever, and it will be inescapable. Three, but you, Christian, need not fear, because you belong to Jesus. You are children of light. So now Paul goes on here to switch gears yet again. And I like to think of what he does next as giving us marching orders until Jesus comes. So what follows in verses 6 through 8 is what we are to do until Jesus returns. These are the things that we are to concern ourselves with. These things are, are to be our focus until he appears. I'm stealing from a commentator. I don't know which one said this. Paul tells us to not be concerned with a date, but rather to be concerned with a way of life until he comes. I like that. It's good. I wish I would have thought of it, but I didn't. Verses 6 through 8. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul says, so then, since we are children of light, as he said in verses 4 and 5, since we are children of light, we are to now live that out. We are to live out that identity as the people of God until Christ returns. And how do we do that? By keeping awake and being sober. Paul's using an illustration telling us that since we're children of light, children of the day, we're not to take part now. Now we're not to take part in those things that characterize darkness. We're not supposed to take part in those things that characterize the nighttime. 
We're not to take part in sinful and unbelieving activities as we await the return of our Lord. Rather, we are to be vigilant and busy ourselves with living out the truth that we are now the people of God who long for Christ's return. And we show that we are the people of God who are eagerly awaiting our Lord by how we live seeking to please him until he comes. And he says we are not to sleep. In this context, to sleep is to be spiritually lazy. Right? It's, it's to be morally and spiritually apathetic to the things of God. To be asleep to eternal realities. It's to sleep in, so to speak, instead of being engaged in and busy with those things that please our master. If one sleeps when he ought not, one assumes that the master has no work for them to do until he comes. To sleep is to forget about the coming day. To sleep is to forget who you are in Christ and, then, and instead to be lazy and live foolishly. But Paul says we are to be awake, diligent, constantly aware that Christ is coming. And to quote John Calvin, we do not want to be found idle when our Lord comes. And Paul says we are to be sober. Now to be sober here means to be self-controlled. Now, drunkenness is used metaphorically for a lack of self-control, but not partaking in literal drunkenness would also be included here too, right? We are to be spiritually alert, self-controlled, disciplined, not given over to the sinful desires of our flesh. We are to make war against our sin and strive to live righteously and in accord with Christ's word. To be sober as John Gill put it, is to not overindulge. To not overindulge the world. We must not give too much thought to the cares of the world at the expense of a focus on eternal matters and spiritual things, the things of God. It's easy for us to get drunk on the world and get drunk on the desires of our sinful flesh and then black out like a drunkard and forget what actually matters. We can forget who we are in Christ and that he is coming again and that we are his people. But how are we to stay awake and be sober? Well, Paul tells us to put on some armor that will defend us against worldliness, laziness, foolishness, and apathy until he comes. In verse 8, he says, Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. I'm going to blast through these fairly quickly, although each of these could take a sermon. We are to put on faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in his person and work for our salvation. Trust or faith in his promises towards us. Trust in his word that it's true. Trust in his plan for our lives. And why is faith important? Well, to lack faith in these things will result in spiritual sleepiness and drunkenness. Why do I say that? Because unbelief is the root of all sin. Whenever we sin, we're not believing what God has said. At least not practically. We're not believing what God has said. Faith is unwavering trust in the Lord and his word, and it protects us from the temptation to sin and fall asleep. So we believe him, and it's armor for us. Second, we are to put on love. That is love for God. We are to strive and seek to love him the way that we ought to, to see his beauty, to see his great mercy towards us in Jesus, and, and to let our love for him flow from that. Why is that important? Because loving God will cause us to walk in obedience to him. 
Is that not why we obey? Because we love. We don't obey with a legal obedience. We obey with gospel obedience because we love him. Love for God will cause us to be diligent in the work of our master until he comes. Love for God will cause us to love our neighbors and do the things that please the Lord. And third, Paul says, we are to put on hope. Hope in our salvation. Our future salvation from the wrath of God. Now, biblically, I hope you all know that our hope does not mean wishful thinking. According to the Bible, our hope is a rock-solid confidence in what God has promised to his people. So Paul says we are to hope at all times in the promise of God that our salvation is certain. It is to be on our head like a helmet. And I may be stretching this a bit, but as a helmet, it is to be on our minds at all times, on your head. We are to be ever meditating on the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. We are to be consciously aware of the hope that we have for the day of the Lord, that we will survive it and live through it and be saved. Now these next two verses, verses 9 and 10, they connect to that last piece of armor, I think, though there's some textual arguments amongst scholars. I am not one of them. I think it makes most sense that it connects to, that it connects to the helmet of hope of salvation. So let me frame it for you this way. He says, put on for a helmet the hope of, of salvation. But what is the ground of our hope for salvation? What is the foundation for our confidence on the day of the Lord? Why should we knowing that we are sinful and that we will not stay awake and alert and sober as as we ought to all the time, why should we still have hope in the face of such a terrible day of judgment? Why should we not be afraid? For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. That's your ground. That's your hope. God has not destined us for wrath, Christian. Eternal punishment is not our destiny. God has sovereignly chosen to give us grace and to spare us from the wrath to come. He destined us then for salvation. If we're not destined for wrath, we must be destined for salvation because those are the only two options. He's chosen us then for salvation, or he has appointed us for salvation. Before the world was created, God decided to show us his electing love and choose to save us from the mass of fallen sinful humanity. God has chosen in grace upon grace to show us mercy and destine us for eternal life. And if God has destined us for life, what fear should we have of eternal punishment? None. None. We should have no fear whatsoever of the coming wrath of God because as Paul just said, that wrath is not for us. It's not for us. We've been chosen for something different. We've been chosen to be the objects of divine mercy and divine favor. We've been chosen for eternal life and salvation. And if we've been chosen for this, it reminds us, and I want to highlight this to you every time lest any of us become arrogant. We didn't earn this. God did not choose you because you're great. God chose this for you. Not as a response to you. This is all of the divine initiative. This is not your doing. This is not my doing. We don't deserve this. 
By nature, we are just as sinful as the rest of the world on whom the wrath of God will fall. We're just as sinful. This is all of grace. You have been chosen according to grace. What a God. What a God. What a merciful God. What a gracious God. He owed us nothing but wrath. We have merited nothing but divine hatred and damnation because of our sins. And yet he chose to destine us not for wrath, but for salvation. And how did we come to obtain this salvation? How did we come to receive this salvation? Through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Don't ever tire of hearing this, Christian. Through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. The salvation that God destined for us was accomplished by the Lord Jesus himself. The one who died for us. This is a powerful phrase. That he died for us reminds us that it was a substitutionary death. It was for us. It was in our place. It was done on our behalf. Again, for us. He was crucified, bled, and died in our place to satisfy the righteous wrath of God in our place in order to satisfy God's demands of justice that was due for us because of our sin. He died for us so that we might be saved and go free. He, having met God's demands for justice in our place, He was judged by God for our sins and paid for them in his own body so that we could be forgiven and spared. And Jesus did this according to the plan of the Father. Paul says, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He died so that we might live. So that we might live with him forever. So that we might have eternal life with him forever. So that we can know him forever. So that we can experience the unparalleled love of God for all eternity. He died to save us from judgment. So that he could claim us as his own. Because he desires us to be with him. What good news is this? He wants us with him. So he died for us. What mercy. What grace. What a great exchange. His life for ours. His death for our life, His righteousness for our sin, His suffering for our salvation. There is no God like this but our God. Let me put this another way to you, Christian. You need not fear the coming wrath and judgment of God. There is no judgment for you to fear because Jesus on the cross has already underwent the judgment of the day of the Lord in your place. Oh, what good news. The day of the Lord fell upon him on the tree for you. He has already passed through the judgment for us in our room instead. So we need not fear any future judgment. Only salvation remains for the people of God. So now we need not fear the return of of Christ. But instead we now look forward to it eagerly. Because there comes our groom. There comes our king. There comes the one who died for us. And we look forward to it eagerly while living godly lives in anticipation of his coming. This is our hope. This is the ground of our confidence on the day of the Lord. God has not destined us for wrath. 
Jesus Christ has died for us so that we might live with him forever. We have been made into children of light through him, so you need not fear the wrath of God. It's not for you. You need not fear the return of Christ whenever that may be. Because for you, Christian, that's a day of salvation and joy. You have been saved. And so you will be saved. Rest in that. Know that. Find peace in that. Rejoice in that. As verse 11 tells us, encourage one another in that. And eagerly look forward to Jesus' return. And live soberly until he comes. Let's pray. What mercy, Lord, that you have given to a people who do not deserve a thing from you. You have not destined us for wrath because you are full of grace. You set Christ forward as a propitiation for our sins. We have been so loved by you. Holy God, help us to rejoice in our salvation. We have been justified and therefore we will be spared on the day of judgment because Christ has underwent the judgment of God in our place. We thank you for such good news. God, help us to live lives of grateful obedience in light of that goodness, in light of your love until our Lord returns. God, help us to put on faith and love and hope that we might stay awake and that we might be sober until he comes. We thank you and we praise your name. Please help us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.